powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog and this Power Hour blogcast. My name is Seth Harris and I am a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change at Northeastern University. As you know, the Power Hour brings you top labor experts and invites them to comment on the big labor issues of the day. Today, we're joined by Todd Vashon and Tia Kuntz. Todd Vashon is a former union carpenter, and then he got tired of honest work and became an assistant professor in the Department of Labor Studies and Employment Relations at Rutgers University's terrific School of Management and Labor Relations. He's also the director of the Labor Education Action, Labor Education Action Research Network. Boy, that's a lot of words to get to the acronym LEARN. Todd is the director. Uh, that's also at Rutgers. As the director of LEARN, Todd oversees the university's labor education programs, which means he's actually training workers and union leaders and staff and other organizations, as well as the public, in the issues that affect workers and worker power, unions and collective action. So Todd, fantastic to have you here. Thanks for joining us on the Power Hour. Thank you, Seth. Great to be here. And our from the other coast, <laughs> who, and let me just say, Tia Kuntz has made a heroic effort to be here today. She's in Southern California, where nature's wrath has been visited on our fellow Americans. I mean, floods uh, everywhere, uh, and I don't want to it's make real. light of it. Tia has been displaced. She's virtually homeless, and she's still here on the Power Hour. Tia Kuntz is the legal and policy research manager at the UCLA Labor Center, where she provides legal research on low-wage industries, and she provides program support for ReWork, which is the Worker Justice Institute, and the Black Worker Center. Tia, thank you. Cannot thank you. There are not words enough to thank you for being on the Power Hour today. Thanks so much. I wouldn't call myself a hero, but you know. But others can. You're okay if others do. <laughs> so before we begin our conversation, I want to remind our audience that the Power at Work blog is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which connects over 100 radio shows and podcasts. To learn more about the network or to find other labor radio shows and podcasts, visit www.laborradionetwork.org. And if you want to listen to or download any or all of the Power at Work blogcasts, they're available for streaming and download on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and all the commercial podcast providers. Just search Power at Work or on any commercial podcast platform and enjoy all our content. And while you're there, how about you give us a five-star rating that will help other people to find the content and maybe persuade your friends to listen to the same stuff you're listening to. Okay, so with that commercial out of the way, let's jump straight into our topics. As always, our topics are agreed to by all three panelists in advance, so we get diverse input. And also, we want to talk about the topics that our guests are working on right now. We've got a couple of great ones today. So let me start uh, with this one. Topic number one is the 2023 BLS Union Members Survey Results. Uh, now, let me say we posted a full blogcast on this topic and had a fantastic discussion, but I'm really eager to get your reactions to the, the union members' uh, survey results um, because you both come from very, very different perspectives as well as different backgrounds and you're in different parts of the country, so you're looking at these issues very differently. So let me just summarize 
the results from the, the union members uh, a survey that BLS does every year. They issue it every year in January. Union membership in the United States increased, but union density declined slightly. Union membership and union density grew in both the private sector and the federal sector, but union membership and union density both declined in the state and local government sectors. In fact, the declines in the state and local government sectors were enough to drag down the overall union density number. So Todd, let me start with you. What was, when you saw these results, when you read these results, as I'm sure you did, what was your reaction and what did you think it meant for worker power in the United States going into 2024? Sure. Yeah. I mean, first off, I wasn't particularly surprised by the findings. I mean, I do kind of follow this monthly as well, but um, just knowing the long trend and knowing the legal landscape of organizing workplaces in the United States in 2024, 2023, 2022, all the way back, um, it wasn't really a surprise. It's kind of similar to last year's findings, right? The labor movement actually added new members, 139,000 new workers belong to unions. Last year, it was over 200,000 new workers belong to unions, but we're still seeing that density go down at the same time. And that happens really as a result of the labor force growing at a faster rate than the new union organizing efforts. Um, and really, that's, that's reflective of the weakness of our labor laws, right? If we look back in 1980, 20% of workers belong to unions. Today, it's only 10%. Um, but that's the percentage of workers. If you get into the actual members, it was 17 million members in 1980, and it's still 14 million members today. So it's not that there's half as many union members. What's happened is new industries have arisen and the labor force has expanded in size and labor has not been able to su successfully organize new workers in all of those new industries. A lot of the service industries and um, you know knowledge economy uh, that has arisen to replace a lot of the traditional manufacturing jobs that we saw, you know, outsourced in mass in the 70s and 80s as employers were seeking, you know, cheaper labor sources overseas, places where they can exploit workers more. Um, and then what we had backfilling in the employment market here in the U.S. is a lot of jobs that have been difficult to organize because, you know, as it is, the National Labor Relations Act doesn't really have any teeth to punish employers who violate the law. Um, there are great protections in the NLRA that, you know, protect our rights to organize in the workplace. But the reality on the ground is, you know, if an employer is, has a lot of resources and wants to prevent a union from forming, it's just a cost of business to, to break the law, to fire workers that are engaged in protected activity and to just go on with their day. Um, so that's really the main reason I'm not surprised that we're seeing, you know, this continued trend that workers are enthusiastic about unions, especially young workers. They're, you know, the support, public support for unions is through the roof, which is fantastic. Um, but it's really hard to translate that into increasing the union density, um, I think, under the given set of rules that we're forced to uh, to operate within. Yeah. Well, Tia, let me ask you the same question. And, and understanding that you're, you live and work in uh, one of the states that has among the highest union density rates in the United States and has seen a lot of labor activism in 2023. What was your take on the union member survey? Well, you know, I don't. I don't know why our public sector density fell necessarily, but I do have, I guess, some insight, right? We did lose about 70,000 folks. And it's so interesting to hear Todd's comparison of how many workers are coming into the labor market. So I do wonder whether or not there was an expansion, a significant expansion of public sector employment such that 
maybe we outweighed the number of folks coming on, outweighed the number of folks who are unionized. Mm. But what I think happened, I hadn't even thought about that, Todd, so I really appreciate that. Um, you know, it's part of a slow, steady decline in public sector density, right? It uh, was 36.9% in 2020. And now it's down to something around 32 or 33%. But that is not like a catastrophic plummet, which is interesting, considering that like five years ago when the Supreme Court decision around Janus came out, you would have thought that we would have had a significant plummet in our public sector density, right? Union density. So it's really a testament to the organizing of our public sector unions. They've gone out and they've made union representation meaningful enough that people are willing to voluntarily turn over their dues. So I am struck by how slow the decline has occurred, um, knowing how rapid the onslaught of right to work legislation has been in different states. Um, so that said, I think we could also maybe attribute some of the public sector loss to outsourcing, to budget shortfalls, maybe some early retirement buyouts. But here in California, you know, we have had public sector unionization growth, like really astronomical public sector unionization growth. And I will name drop, right? That's a result of, of efforts by our friends in healthcare, by our friends in the public sector, like SEIU and CNA and CTA and the NEA and CSEA and AFSME and so many others. And we know that in the public sector, Black and brown people and women are disproportionately represented, right? And so when we see declines in public sector unionization rates, when we see attacks on public sector, that's really an attack on middle-class jobs for black and brown people and women. So it is a source of extreme concern um, nationally that we see that decline. So that's, I think, you know, you have asked about how I think these figures weigh into the question of organizing and worker power. And I think ultimately people are out there, they're doing it, they're doing the organizing and they're getting workers to turn over those dues, even though they don't have to. So it's a really a victory, even though that might sound like a glass half full response. Yeah, well, that's okay. We're happy to take glass half full responses here. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I, so I, I've, I've opined on this at some length on the, on the last podcast, but I just want to add a couple of points. I was, Todd, I was surprised to hear you say that you were not surprised. Um, and maybe I was naive to be surprised. Mm. I, the, the, the state and local government numbers snuck up on me. I expected the growth we saw in the federal sector because I know some of the changes that the Biden administration has made and how active the federal employee unions are in organizing, particularly organizing workers in units they already represent. Mm. So their growth was not a surprise to me. In fact, that was one of the pillars of where I thought we would see a growth in the union density rate. The state and local decline was a surprise. And and I must say, I, I guess I have undervalued what Tia was just talking about, which is this extremist right-wing assault on public sector unions, including uh, your requirements in states like Iowa that unions get recertified at the end of every contract, efforts to decertify unions. You know, the teachers union in, in Miami, Dade in Florida just barely avoided being decertified. That would have been a gigantic loss for the teachers union. But those kinds of fights are going on in public sector units all around the country. And I think I think I got sold on the fact that that I know that the public employee unions, the state and local government unions, NEA, AFT, AFSME, and many others, CSEA, um, uh, uh, the, the uh, CWA has a unit. 
um, in very has units in various places. I got very caught up in the fact that they are very, very, very tightly focused on internal organizing and going out and getting non-members to become members and members to pay their dues voluntarily. And so they have not seen as much of a loss in revenue as was expected. But I guess that assault has really had its effect. The other thing that has had an effect is there are public sector jobs all across the United States, including in heavily unionized states, uh, where there's high union density in the public sector that are wide open. There are vacancies, huge numbers of job vacancies all across the country. And our friends at AFSCME ran a campaign to staff the front lines. I think we're beginning to see some growth in public sector, state and local government employment in the last jobs report. But we're going to have to see steady, consistent growth in state and local government employment, I think, in order to be able to bring those union density numbers up again, or at least the union membership numbers up again, because you can't organize an empty chair. Uh, I feel like I'm making a joke, but it's quite true. You can't organize workers who aren't working in the state government or the local government. So I, I I appreciate your takes on it. I, I, it's the, I, I think I, I, what I, what I want us to guard against is sort of learned pessimism, sort of experience driven pessimism. Last year, I was really enthusiastic, 270 or the year before 2022, 270,000 new union members, 139,000, as Todd said this year. That was disappointing to me. But it's growing again. There were five years where there was no growth in union membership. If we can keep the numbers growing, and by we, I mean the folks who are doing the organizing and are doing the recruiting and, and, and making the case to workers that they should join. If that can continue, then I think there is some hope for making the union density rate at least turn or plateau or maybe climb. I'm, I'm hopeful. Maybe I'm too optimistic. I'm, I'm happy to be called naive. My glass is half full, Tia, not half That's right. Empty. That's okay. right. <laughs> so let's I mean, talk just about remember the- what we Please thought was going to happen after Janice. Like, remember. Right. I mean, yeah. it was yeah. everyone I know was, you know, doom and gloom. It was a paralysis moment. And the fact that we've declined at the exact same rate of decline we've been experiencing since 2000, despite an economy that's growing, is pretty astronomical. So just yeah. to put things into a glass half full, you're welcome. Enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, very good. Okay, so let's go I'm to topic hope, I'm hopeful also, oh, sorry, sorry, Seth, go ahead. Seth, I'm, I'm hopeful also because beyond just these numbers, there's just so much organizing activity going on, right? There's workers that are not counted in these numbers that are taking collective action and winning changes in the workplace, even without having a union contract in place. Like there's a there's definitely like an awakening among the working class, especially younger workers to 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 understand the power you have as coming together as a collective. Right. Whether you're certified or recognized and counting these numbers or not, we can see that workers are, are, uh, you know, making real efforts to make change in their workplaces, which I am. Yeah, those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those younger workers did not get the memo that unions are dead. I guess they just they didn't they didn't believe it. Okay, topic number two is automation, workers, and unions. Of course, this is an immensely important topic across industries and has been for several decades. Uh, we've all heard and read and witnessed stories about the effects of robotics on manufacturing industries, for example, over the course of the last four decades or so. The recent SAG-AFTRA and Writers Guild strikes against the Hollywood studios were were partly about 
uh, artificial intelligence, which I think we could probably start calling the robotics of the mind. Um, and perhaps mm -hmm. most economically important, automation played a huge role in the negotiations between the International Longshore Workers Union and the Pacific Maritime Association regarding the West Coast ports. And let me just say, I'm going to offer a prediction here. Uh, the negotiations uh, between the International Longshore Association and Longshoremen's Association and the East Coast and Gulf Coast ports are going to begin fairly shortly. I predict automation will be a big issue in that space as well. So Tia, you and your colleagues at the UCLA Labor Center recently issued a report. I want to get the title right. It's entitled <laughs> Automation and the Future of Dock Work at the San Pedro Bay Port Complex for the uninitiated. The San, San Pedro Bay Port Complex is the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Mm -hmm. um, we are going to post a link to the report so everybody can read it. Um, and I hope you do. But, but uh, I want you to start out by telling us what questions you were seeking to answer and what you found. I love talking about automation. So I'm really, really glad that you picked up this particular report to talk about. We were looking to find out how automation has impacted the port so far, where it's going and what the effects are. Are they quantifiable and particularly on job loss? And we found mixed results. Right. So I'll tell you a little bit of my findings here. If you want to read the report, please do. But hopefully in the next minute and a half, you'll get the download. Anybody who studies automation will tell you that it's really contextually specific on the industry. And so I'm going to talk about automation in shipping, right, specifically in dock work. But there are some of the lessons that we learned that are applicable in other areas, in AI and Zagastra, for example, or in how we automate in grocery stores or in restaurants. But when we're talking longshoring work, we're talking automated straddle carriers, automated guided vehicles, automated crane operations. That's really, really specific. So the questions are, how many jobs get lost? How many jobs stand to be gained to make up for that loss? What's the loss to the economy? And what's the quality loss? What's the quality of the jobs that remain and the quality of jobs that are lost? And more broadly, really, what does a worker-centered automation agenda look like? Right. I don't want to live in a world where we're all terrified of the future that the robots are going to be taking our jobs. There is a world in which automation can benefit job quality. Right. There are a lot of jobs that are super repetitive, that have just a, a hallucinatory effect on workers, a stupefying effect on workers. It would be wonderful if robots could pick all of our strawberries and we could just drink margaritas. Right. Um, the questions arise around universal basic income and how we're going to make sure that we have a social safety net that supports people if we're losing actual real wages. So let's get into it. First, there's a lot of agreement about the problems in shipping. There's bottlenecks in shipping. Many of us have experienced delays if you've tried to buy something and the shipping has been delayed. If you've tried to do anything in construction or remodeling, the shipping's been delayed. And that's a logistics problem, right? That's bottlenecking at the port. There's also a bunch of increased competitions. There's a lot more ports and a lot more shipping companies than there have been and then there's non-standardized regulations and approaches, and particularly some non-standardized air quality regulations that make some ports more expensive than others, which is particularly true down here in the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, as we've got pretty stringent air quality regulations in the state. So we found that both the operators and the union agree on that, right? There's a lot of alternatives to solving those problems besides automation. So some of the low-hanging fruit is going to a 24-7 
model so that you're working around the clock. You got dock workers out there around the clock. They're not shutting down ever, and you're just able to haul more cargo. Another is um, looking at inland ports and making much, much, much more efficient use of on-dock rail and that turnaround onto trucks to take advantage of inland ports that we are developing in mass throughout the country, right? And by inland ports, I mean big old warehouse epicenters. And then automation, no one really knows whether it offers actual immediate benefits, immediate cost benefits, labor benefits, efficiency benefits. And what we found is that pretty much all the data suggests from other contexts that it doesn't. And that might be why only 4% of the entire shipping industry is automated globally, just 4%. Some of the shippers that we talked to said they don't want to be the guinea pigs, right? We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of investment in that kind of equipment. And shipping in particular is hard to automate. Shipping is unpredictable. You're looking at huge, huge costs if something goes wrong. So you need human bodies there to watch that technology. And that's kind of where ILWU held the line. And this is what's interesting. You talk about talks now on the East Coast. ILWU held the line on automation in a few central ways. So they created a whole new job classification. Someone has to be assigned to safeguard the robots. So there's a specific minimum manning requirement for any terminal that uses automated equipment. There's scope limiting on the scope of potential automation. There's particular arbitration processes for determining violations that are in LW jurisdiction that result from anything in automation. So some of the, some of those lessons can be applied in other contexts, and some are just really unique to shipping. I don't know that we will ever experience robots taking all the dock work jobs away, hmm. um, which is critical because dock work jobs, especially on the Pacific Coast, are unique. They're iconic for being able to offer six-figure salaries to folks with a high school degree. Right. We know that in Long Beach, one in eight people works at the port. It has a huge, it's a huge economic cornerstone for us. And so there's a lot at stake if we end up losing catastrophically those jobs at the port. Yeah. Thanks, Tia. Very, very interesting. Again, we're going to post a link to the to the report for people who want to read the whole thing. Todd, I want you to sort of uh, step back a little bit and look at the issue a little bit more broadly, because you uh, earlier mentioned uh, what happened in the manufacturing industry and other industrial sectors uh, in the 70s and 80s with the offshoring of, of a lot of jobs. And also, we ended up with a lot of robotics and other kinds of technologies that replaced a lot of jobs uh, in those industries. So you talk to unions and workers and union leaders and union staff all the time. How big a concern is automation and technology? And do you think unions are well prepared to address those issues? Great. Um, one, I think it is a huge concern, but like Tia hinted at, it's really industry specific, right? It's going to have a greater impact on workers that are in, in occupations that are more vulnerable to automation, right? But in addition to automation, we also have AI, which is, you know, threatening some of the occupations that we never thought would be facing automation, right? A lot of white collar work and knowledge work that can be done now with the use of AI. So there's, there's definitely fears across different occupations that are vulnerable. Um, capitalists are always innovating to find ways to make new profit, which in the end often means finding new ways to screw over workers to make more profit. 
Um, you know, that's very, the, can I just say, that's a very cynical view, Todd. It's a view I share. <laughs> it's a view I share, but it's a very cynical view. <laughs> so that's why we organize, right? We got to push back and build the power and shape, you know, the technology is being shaped and driven right now, largely by the employers for the purpose of increasing profits and reducing labor costs, right? That's the purpose of the technology. I would like to see unions to be more proactive in negotiating the development and, and adoption of technology mm -hmm. in the workplace, right? We were, we'll talk about climate change a little bit later, but when we saw globalization, labor was largely reactive to it, right? We were not proactive in helping to shape that, that inevitable change. And I think we have an opportunity here to come to the table, like knowing that this is coming down the pipe and really sit down and talk about how to shape it in a way that can ensure good jobs for the future, protections for workers who may lose their jobs along the way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you know, some unions are starting to talk about it. I know the UAW is trying to negotiate over technology in the workplace. There's some white collar unions that are thinking about it right now. Professors unions are considering it, right? Like the more we can be proactive on this and we can bring it to the, to the bargaining table, the better off we all are. Um, but of course the flip side is the majority of workers don't have a union. So that's not even an option for most workplaces, right? You're part of the elite 10% that gets to negotiate over wages, hours, working conditions, and then maybe you bring technology into the bargaining table in that scenario. But that's, you know, the other 90 plus percent of workers don't even have the ability to negotiate over that. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that's my fear. <laughs> that's the type of stuff that keeps me up at night. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, robots don't buy cars, right? So I mean, at what point do the capitalists completely replace the workers who are also their consumers and find there's nobody left to buy their products? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. The economist John Maynard Keynes predicted back in the 1930s that um, because of technological developments, we would all only be working 15 hours a week. And we would only do that because we needed something to do. And there'd be plenty of money for everyone. Um, there's plenty of money for some people, but not mm -hmm. for everyone. And that's one of the critical reasons, as, as you were saying, Todd, uh, for uh for unions to get to the bargaining table on this. And I, I want to maybe to even get this, take this to even a slightly higher level. It's, it's the exceptional case that technology is either absolutely morally bad or absolutely morally good, <laughs> right? More often than not, what the effect that more that technology has on society, on workers, on the economy is a matter of choice, right? And so it is not inevitably the case that every technological innovation is going to result in fewer workers having good quality jobs. Some technologies have had that effect, absolutely. Uh, but there are technologies that have created, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of excellent quality jobs. There didn't used to be cars. Now there's an entire auto industry, not only in the United States, but around the world. There didn't used to be an internet, right? Actually, within my memory, my adult memory, there was no internet. Now we have millions of internet-based jobs that were made possible by the existence of the internet. But the question is, will workers have the ability to influence how technology is going to be used? Will it be used to save labor and therefore increase profits, or will it be used to create jobs to make people's lives better, to improve job quality in the way that Tia was talking about? I think that's a very, very, very big issue, and I appreciate both of you opining on that. Uh, let me just give you a last chance if there's anything, Tia, you wanted to add to that, and then I'll, or I'll go on to the third topic if you want me to. Well, I would say, you know, 
you guys are right. Like we need unions at the table and we need that specificity. We need informed unions to get into the nitty gritty about exactly what the occupations are, exactly what the training would be required in order to retrain or upskill, right? If we're looking at a quote unquote, just transition. And I'll just say, you know, our friends at the LWU, our brothers and sisters really have a knee-jerk response to the concept of just transition. It's really, you know, some would argue unrealistic for folks who have high school degrees and are doing physical jobs to upskill to become a mechanic that involves complicated AI technology. Conversely, what we know is that automation at ports is taking away the higher-end jobs and leaving the remaining really tough, physically demanding jobs. So I do think labor needs to be extremely well-informed in that results from data. You got to get transparent data and you have to have government have some kind of normalization, standardization, regulation. And right now we're so behind the ball. I've been excited to see recent executive orders on AI, but so far our state and national government are really leaving unions out to figure out how to become experts suddenly in technology, become experts in predicting the future, become experts on how that might affect the economy and occupations that they represent and bargain. And that's just a tall order. So really there's a lot of work to be done at the state and federal level. And then, you know, Todd and myself, people who are labor researchers, your local friendly labor center that can help to do some of that for you. Right. Um, so I, I, I can't imagine a world where we're not going to be getting more and more and more requests from additional unions to figure this out. You can stay up to date with the latest news about workers, worker power, and unions by subscribing to the Power at Work blog. You'll receive the weekly download, a Power at Work newsletter sent straight to your inbox. The weekly download collects about two dozen of the week's articles, academic studies, press releases, podcasts, and videos from across the internet. We find the stories and deliver them directly to you. So subscribe to the weekly download right now on the front page of the Power at Work blog. Go to poweratwork.us. Well, you said the magic phrase that's going to allow me to brilliantly segue to topic number three, because you said the phrase just transition and topic number three is about just transition, in particular, climate change, just transition and worker power. So this is a huge issue, not just for tens of millions of workers, but also for the planet. And sadly, Tia has been living through one of the consequences of, right. of climate change, and we're all going to be facing it. Right. It is an existential threat and our public policies. I'm going to I'm going to lean forward a little bit here and say they're kind of sort of beginning to catch up to the urgency of the crisis. I wouldn't say they're all the way there, but they're kind of sort of beginning to get there. Um, President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act is, is investing hundreds of billions of dollars in renewable and green energy sources as well as greener transportation technologies like electric vehicles. But there has been for a very long time a tension between the labor movement and the environmental advocacy community over the issue of jobs. And and the, the simple matter is that there are a lot of very good quality union jobs in industries that are put at risk by a declining reliance on fossil fuels and existing technologies and many renewable energy industries and green manufacturing industries, frankly, have very few unions. Uh, they have lower wages. They have fewer benefits, partly because they don't have unions. Um, 
And so there's a big tension. There's a big issue. Todd recently published a book entitled Clean Air and Good Jobs, U.S. Labor and the Struggle for Climate Justice. And Todd, I'm hoping that your book gives us the final answer, the complete answer. It's just like a playbook to getting to the correct place. But let me let me let me uh, without being cheeky about it. Let me ask, what was your argument in the book? And and how do we accomplish real climate justice? while we're also ensuring a just transition for workers and unions. Sure. Well, the key argument really, if you boil it down, is that labor needs to lead on, on climate policy, right? The, the catchphrase is if you're, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? So this is the, the environment is too important to leave to environmentalists. Like we, we know there's going to be tremendous job impacts in terms of fossil fuel job loss. But there's also this creation of this whole new industry, which you already alluded to, is is not unionized. And going back to topic one, we know the history of the past 40 years of new industries arising and the difficulty of organizing unions in those new industries. And look, a lot of those renewable companies are owned by the same tech companies that are you know, very anti-union. The Elon Musks of the world are going to spend whatever they can to bust a union up in their workplace. Uh, but that's not all of the green jobs, right? There's a lot of great construction work. A lot of this infrastructure uh, spending is going to create good jobs for the building trades. My former union carpenters are going to be involved in a lot of the offshore wind construction off the coast of the northeast of the U.S. But those new jobs in the northeast of the U.S. on the coast are not going to help those workers who may be losing their jobs in, say, Ohio or Indiana at, at a coal-fired power plant because we have to stop using fossil fuels. So this is really where the... the just transition question comes into play. Um, maybe just to be a little uh, educational for your listeners, the, the idea of just transition, if you're not familiar with it, really is rooted in the work of Tony Mizaki, who was a leader in the oil, chemical, and atomic workers union. So I, I always got to give give some credit where it's due whenever people use the term just transition to know that it is a term that comes out of the labor movement, right? There is a lot of resistance to it now, as Tia mentioned, right? Some people hear it and they have this knee-jerk reaction that just transition just means you're going to take my job away, right? Rich Trumka even said is it, he said it just means a fancy funeral, right? And there's a good reason for people to think that because our government has a terrible track record of helping mm. workers transition through changes, through big periods of change. You know, the whole globalization, we had the Trade Adjustment Assistance Act, and it really didn't equate to what people had hoped it would, right? It didn't lead to actual jobs at the other end. And when it did, they weren't jobs anywhere near the equal quality of the jobs that were lost from outsourcing. So in my book, I really investigate the activists within the labor movement that are trying to get their unions to be more proactive on climate change and to make demands, you know, one of the government to center workers in the transition plans, which we see a bit of that in the Inflation Reduction Act, right? It's actually really encouraging that some of the incentives that they're giving in terms of tax breaks and direct pay to, to public uh, entities. Look, if you use uh, certified apprenticeship programs, the government will give you even more money towards the project. If you use a certain amount of domestically made content, so US made steel and products will give you even more money towards the project. So there's these different built-in incentives that are like at least driving us towards better labor standards in the green economy, which is great and important. Is it enough? No, I think we need to do much, much more. Um, the folks that I interviewed throughout my research, which was over the course of 10 years of you know participating in different organizations and as a local union president myself, um, the idea of just transition has layers to it, right? The, at the most basic level is 
protecting the workers who lose their jobs. So that requires some kind of social welfare policies, some wage replacement, some job training, some job placement. So ensuring that when workers are laid off from their job at the, at the coal power plant, they're taken care of, right? They're not bearing the cost of the transition. But beyond that, we're going to create all these new jobs. Are they going to be crappy jobs or are they going to be good union jobs? So that's where we need to be proactive. So we're going to be protective, but we also have to be proactive. And that's what I mean about labor coming to the table to shape the climate policies and really proactively drive us through the change rather than reacting to the change, which was often the case for globalization and deindustrialization. Um, but there's been some encouraging examples recently. You know, the United Auto Workers, when they were on strike, one of their demands was a just transition for the workers in the battery plants to be under the master contract and have the same conditions that apply to the fossil fuel uh, combustion engine plants. And they won that on their strike. That's, that's incredible. That's a really important win. Um, there's a group called the National Climate Jobs Resource Center, which is bringing together building trades unions and education unions and others in different states to help shape state level policy and to promote green infrastructure projects with project labor agreements, prevailing wages, and just ensuring that we're building at union, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, my own union, the American Federation of Teachers, is really um, has an active environmental climate justice caucus within the union. And we're doing educational pieces for local unions about how to take advantage of the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act. So teacher union locals reaching out to their local building trades comrades and, and then saying, how do we leverage this funding right now to you know retrofit our schools and bring in solar panels to our schools and have it be built by union labor? So that's you know addressing the climate crisis, adjusting the, the uh, inequality and environmental justice issues, and then also creating union jobs. So I'm encouraged, but there's a lot more that needs to be done, obviously. And just transition is such an inclusive, broad phrase. It applies to automation as much as it applies to right. AI as much as it does to Absolutely. climate change. And I think it's just reflective of the nature of capitalism, right? There's yeah. always something coming down the pipe that's going to leave workers uh, you know, putting their head out there. How can we ensure that we don't have to keep doing this over and over and over and over again? Yeah. So, Tia, uh, California not only is sort of becoming one of the epicenters of climate change and weather effects of climate change, but it's, it has long been a leader in our country in environmental regulation, environmental uh, uh, legislation. And so these issues are not new in California. Um, what's your sort of generalized approach, but also what, your, what has been your experience in watching what's happened in California around the issue of just transition? Well, that's a big question. Um, and it's a real mixed it experience, honestly. Um, and there is more conversation about it than I have ever seen in my decade and a half in the labor movement. Um, and it, you know, that's really thrilling to see. So our Division of Industrial Relations has a brand new climate justice core or division within its labor and workforce development agency. We're seeing more and more state investment in high road training partnerships throughout the state, which are partnerships with between unions and employers to identify necessary training, identify trends, and get workers into those trainings so they can get out into good union jobs. And more and more of those trainings feature 
environmental considerations. So I'll name drop one, which is the Net Zero Plus Electrical Training Institute right down here run by IBEW Local 11 that specializes in getting folks career ready for jobs in our new zero emission um, world. And so I think that we will end up having a little bit of a bifurcation, like those industries that are already well represented and have unions that are being proactive about having a climate strategy to get their workers into those jobs will have better outcomes than those industries that don't. And in California, it is a big conversation right now. We're looking at Lithium Valley. Everybody's looking at Lithium Valley, which is a big chunk of land that's in Southern and Central California, where there's a lot of lithium. And we know that there's going to be a lot of mining there. California doesn't really have a just, big mining. Let me, just have you explain, yeah. let me just have you explain to folks, the reason that lithium is so important is oh, right. it is the critical element in electric vehicle batteries. And so we, you know, we all are familiar with the lithium iode battery. That is the lithium that is underneath the surface in California that needs to be mined. Sorry, I just wanted to right. understand. No, I appreciate why. it. As we transition away from fossil fuel based energy into into renewable energy, you have to store that energy somewhere, and it's lithium that stores it in your battery. So, any of us who has earbuds, anybody who uses a laptop, anybody who's got an electric car, anything that is rechargeable whatsoever has lithium in it, and so we need more lithium. We are have a rapacious appetite for lithium now, an appetite that doesn't yet match the one we have for fossil fuels, but that will eventually, right? And so California, I worry because we don't have a strong mining union. We don't have a lot of those relationships. We don't have a lot of those connections. And so what are the unions that are going to get the political education and step up and represent those workers? And I think political education is a really important part of any kind of just transition. And in California, those unions that have gotten on the train early and often and educated their membership and been at the table in an, in an, an effort to talk about how to place their workers in jobs that are in zero emission technologies, et cetera, those are the unions that have better outcomes. Um, and the reason that I talked about just transition when I spoke about the port is that one of the things that we see is that our evil capitalist overlords have used electrification as an excuse to automate. And electrification is not automation. And so I think it's important for unions to know and hold the line that when we look towards employers or industries that are making quote unquote green transitions, those don't have to mean displacing workers. That doesn't have to mean automation. So we have to be, you know, the devil's in the details and we have to be real careful in our organizing about how we preserve jobs, even as the inevitable electrification comes through, the inevitable, you know, AI comes in. Um, so I have mixed feelings about how things will unfold in California. That said, Seth, I'm glad that you went back to talking about the New Deal, <laughs> because this is, this is an opportunity to get it right. This is an opportunity to, to create jobs programs that don't leave behind black and brown workers and jobs programs that don't leave behind women and jobs programs that don't right. have those kinds of inequities in them. And so when I teach this to my students, I teach this is a really remarkable moment. They're going to be involved in employment that is funded by the Infrastructure Act. They will. And if they're not, their neighbors will, their roommates will, their cousins will. And right. the question is, are they going to have the same kind of disparate outcomes that we had following New Deal programs or are we going to get it right? Right. 
Uh, let me just say that, uh, you know, we've had, uh, I don't know, something like six or seven dozen guests on various blogcasts on the Power at Work blog. But Tia wins because she's the first one to rule, roll out the phrase evil capitalist overlord. Yeah, that's the first <laughs> time. Haven't heard that one before. Okay, we've got one more topic, uh, and then we're going to get you all out of here. Very important. Uh, our final topic for today, and that is the business community's goes to war against labor law in the courts. So three companies have raised legal attacks on the NLRB in recent days. SpaceX, which was recently, which is Elon Musk's, one of Elon Musk's companies, deep sigh from Tia in response to the mention of that Speaking name. of evil capitalist overlords. <laughs> right. Space. I wasn't. I wasn't going to say those are your words. Okay, space. We're, we're not trying to get them to sponsor or anything. I swear. SpaceX, which was recently joined by Trader Joe's, is arguing that the National Labor Relations Board is unconstitutional, and the reason it is unconstitutional is that when Congress enacted the National Labor Relations Act back in the 1930s, they put limits on the president's ability to fire uh, the NLRB's administrative law judge law judges, and the members of the National Labor Relations Board. Those public servants can only be fired for cause and not for political reasons. Starbucks, separately, already has gotten a case into the United States Supreme Court, arguing that the NLRB's standard for injunctions, the standard for securing an injunction that is largely used for getting workers back into the workplace after they have been illegally fired, um, is too weak and that it needs to be the standard uh, that is used for other kinds of injunctions, which is, a frankly, a more difficult standard for the NLRB and the courts to meet. So I'm going to ask you, uh, uh, and, and uh, T, I'll start with you on this. I'm going to ask you to put your lawyer hat on. You have both mm -hmm. a law degree and a public policy degree. So I guess this is a left side brain thing. I don't know. You'll tell me. So, but I'm going to ask you what is admittedly a loaded question. Until recently, employers seemed to be satisfied with stacking the labor law deck in their favor through the courts. Now, employers seem to want to set the whole deck on fire. So do you agree with that assessment? Are we in a new stage of labor battles or legal battles over labor law? And if so, where does that leave us? And what does it say about the state of labor relations in our country? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to figure out if this is old wine and new bottles or if this does actually herald a new era, a more, a more brazen employer challenges to some of the most fundamental things about our labor infrastructure in this country. And I I don't think this is old wine and new bottles. I, I do think that employers feel emboldened by this composition of the Supreme Court. That said, trying to dismantle the board, I mean, that's wild. And they're definitely trying to dismantle 10J injunctions, which are those, that's the specific remedy when folks have lost their job because of retaliation. So the status quo is preserve the status quo. Those workers can keep going to work while they're proving their claim in court. Well, if Starbucks gets its way, then no worker's ever going to want to organize ever because you know they're going to get fired. And they're going to have to spend years litigating their case during which 
what, they're not making money or they move on. They go get a new job. They got to support their kids. They got to pay mortgage. They got to pay the rent. So it really would have a spectacularly chilling effect on organizing if we were to eliminate those 10J injunctions. And I don't have faith in the Supreme Court whatsoever. That said, I do think that this wild <laughs> Elon say, Musk... Can I, can, yeah. I, can, I, can I just say, uh, I thought Todd was being cynical before, but <laughs> not trusting... You don't trust the United States Supreme... I'm, I'm As a former law professor, I'm outraged that I'm you sure would you suggest are. that the sure Supreme Court... No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but it is, right? It's a wild moment for so many of our basic rights. I mean, we've already seen what's happened in the world of reproductive rights. We're seeing what's happened right now in environmental regulatory rights. Like, of course, they're going to make a bid for striking down our most basic protections in the act if they don't strike down the board altogether. Now, the second set of suits, right, by Trader Joe's and Elon Musk, those seem to me pretty tenuous. I mean, the wild, almost sophomoric language in the suits themselves that call the NLRB, what is it? The very definition of tyranny. I mean, yes. it's pretty hilarious. So that to me feels like overreach, but that Trader Joe's also is appealing to the Supreme Court on the basis of the fundamental unconstitutionality of the board suggests that employer groups are now trying to actually dismantle it, which is wild. And that's new. And so its effect on worker organizing, like I said, I have no faith that the court's going to come out in our favor. And that's, to me, says three things, right? Like, number one, Congress has to do something, pass the PRO Act, do something, but they're not going to. So we are going to enter a new era of pitched battles. And the third is, God, we need labor education. We need it desperately. People do not know about these cases. They do not know that the labor board is under threat right now. And as the Trader Joe's union says, the very customers of Trader Joe's are the ones who would be horrified to learn that where they're putting their dollars is going towards eroding worker rights and the institutions that protect them. So I have taught labor studies for over a decade and I'm time and again having to introduce my students to the very most basic concepts because they don't learn it in high school and they haven't learned it elsewhere, even at the world's leading public institution, right? Um, UCLA. So I feel like labor education and organizing are going to get us out of this, not the courts. So uh, let me just say, my my view is, I, I'm going to come to you in just a second, Todd. I'm not sure that these lawsuits are going to dismantle the NLRB. They will politicize the NLRB because basically the board will still exist, the ALJs will still exist, but the president will have complete power to appoint them or to fire them if he disagrees with them. So they'll be yes, hyper politicized. So the, so the board will continue. It'll just be a be a very different board. And in when you have and an volatile, right, and volatile, absolutely. and undo and we, the work of the previous administration's board. I I think that's exactly right. All right, Todd. So let me. I, I want you to take this on not from a legal perspective or or, um, uh, or even from an academic perspective, but from the perspective of former union president, former union carpenter, somebody who works with unions every day. Does this matter? I mean, you know, I, does, does the law really matter anymore? And let me just say, I, I, and I, I'm not asking that facetiously, I'm asking that very seriously. And, and I want to point to an example. The law requires that Starbucks and Amazon bargain in good faith with their unions. And they are absolutely positively not doing that. And they have been found by the board to not be doing that. Does the law matter here or does it all already 
forget about how these cases come out. Are we already in a place where the only thing that matters is power? I think power is the only thing that has always mattered, and that's what shapes the law to begin with. <laughs> um, and we have laws, but we have no, there's no punitive uh, power, right? Uh, the NLRB is not like OSHA. They can't levy fines. They can have remunerative pieces, like, you know, reinstate somebody who was wrongfully terminated, and like Tia said, could take forever, and it costs the employer practically nothing. So it's no punishment at all. Um, as a student of sociology, I say a rule that isn't enforced is, is not actually a rule. Um, but I think that, you know, when I was reading about this, the first thing that comes to mind to me is that this is really just one piece of a broader attack on democracy itself. I mean, what do unions do in their essence? They bring democracy into this authoritarian sphere of our daily lives called the workplace. Right. We presumptively live in a democratic society with rights and freedoms. But the minute we step into our workplace, you check all those rights at the door because it's at will employment and the boss can fire you for whatever reason they want. There is no such thing as wrongful termination except for those protected classes in the you know, discrimination, anti-discrimination law. But there's always a way for the employer to frame why they fired you and they can fire you for whatever reason they want at any time they want. I don't like that blue shirt. I don't like blue shirts. You're fired. There's nothing you can do about that. What a union does, it is blue, right? <laughs> union brings that, that power. I was, trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out who you were firing. And apparently it's... I'm Damn you, Seth. Got to turn my camera off now, I guess. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Todd. But so what a union does is it brings it brings voice into the workplace, right? Now the the, the uh, employees have some say over their wages, their hours, their working conditions. The employers required to bargain with the with the union over those issues. So, it's the unions are an expansion of democracy. Unions are an education ground for working people to understand how the economy works, so that they can use their political voice to better the cause of working people. So of course. The right-wing evil capitalist overlords are attacking every element of the de of our democratic institutions to undermine anything that challenges their ultimate power and ultimate vacuuming of all wealth and money into the hands of fewer and fewer and fewer people as we've been seeing for decades. Wow. I thought you were being cynical before, but uh, again, I'm not saying you're wrong, but it's, boy, it's, that's a sort of a dark view. And, I'm, and, I, and again, I, I don't want to disagree because the the entire enterprise of this assault on the administrative state of which this effort to undermine the NLRB is one piece. It's not the entire piece. The leading case that's currently before the Supreme Court involves the Securities and Exchange Commission, and it's about whether their administrative law judges can have just cause protections, among other things. There are other issues in that case as well. So the NLRB case may never get to the court because that issue may be addressed in this SEC versus Jarkasi yep. case. But that in the entire enterprise of the assault of the administrative state is to make politics a bigger part of government decision making and for expertise and science and data-driven decision-making and evidence-based decision-making much, much less important. And, and you can see where this extends to, you know, protections about how regulations are written, protections of others in government, protections of, of people's rights in the executive branch context. You know, we saw the extreme version of this argument when President Trump uh, former President Trump in his legal cases essentially argued, I am absolutely immune for everything I did when I was president of the United States. 
That is an extreme version of this same argument called unified executive theory, where the president should have absolute yep. control over everything having to do with executive decision making in the government, and Congress has no say in we any word of for that. that. It's fascism. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it really descended from uh, evil capitalist overlords. It's a logical extension. I've so Todd, you oh, just put my. things in such excellent context that this is oh, part my. of the broader dismantling of our systems of democracy. Um, Boy, you're making a lot of people on Twitter very happy. Twitter X, right? <laughs> happy right now, but not, but not its owner. But not its owner. Okay. No, not its owner. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have, we've gone way over, and I knew we were going to go way over because this has been such a fantastic conversation. I didn't want to cut you uh, either one of you off. A deep and sincere thank you to Tia Kuntz and Todd Vashon for joining the Power Hour today. Hey, audience, you should subscribe to the Power at Work blog so we can keep you updated mm -hmm. on new content as we add it to the blog. You can find the subscription block at the bottom of the blog's front page. There's also a pop-up that comes on every time you go to the page. Go there right after you finish this broadcast as a thank you to Tia and Todd for their great presentations and subscribe to the blog. And finally, follow us on all your social media channels. You'll find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, X, Threads, Instagram, and TikTok. And now we're on Patreon. So follow us there as well. Just search Power at Work or Power at Work blog. I promise you'll find us. Follow us in all those places. Thank you again for watching. Thank you for sticking with us to the very end. We'll see you on the blog very soon. Hey, keep the power on, everybody. Thanks.